0: Good morning. Good morning, dearly loved church. Um, Grab your Bible. Open it up. Um, I hope you're here to exalt Jesus Christ um, this morning. That is um, the entire purpose for which we exist. Uh, The section of scripture that you're looking for is Luke chapter 23. The very end of Luke 23. Um, We exist to come here and worship and exalt Jesus in our worship We undertake studies like this where we've been going through the Gospel of Luke pretty methodically because we want to learn about Jesus' life so that we can better reflect him and more faithfully reflect him um, as we live our lives out in the world. And so that is our purpose in coming here. Um, We've gotten to the point in the narrative where we're actually studying Jesus' death. Uh, This is Luke 23, beginning in verse 44. Last Sunday, we took some time to um, look at Jesus' death from a particular point of view. We looked at Jesus' death in terms of being a, a wrath-absorbing death, whereby he, he took the wrath properly owed to us because of our sin, the wrath of God properly owed to us that he took it upon himself at the cross so that we can be justly forgiven by God. We, we talked about that last Sunday, how his death was a wrath-absorbing death. Today, um, in the next section, the section where he actually passes away, breathes his last, we're looking at it from a little bit different angle. Jesus' death in terms of being a reconciling death. That Jesus in his death actually restored to us something that we had lost and that we couldn't regain on our own. Jesus' death as a, as a reconciling death. That's our main theme today. We'll talk about what that lost thing was. <clears throat> we'll talk about what Jesus did to win it back for us and what it means to you. Okay, Let's read, let's read the text first, uh, Luke 23, beginning in verse 44. We'll read through the end of the chapter. Uh, if you're able to stand, I want to invite you to stand for the reading of the word this morning. Um, this is the account of Jesus' death. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested, according to the commandment. Father, we submit ourselves to you and the living and active word. I pray that lives would be changed as a result of this time we spend looking into the living and active word. And I pray that you would start with me. We love you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, please be seated. Well, we've got two parts to the account, don't we? There's a, there's a, a first part where, that describes Jesus' actual death, and then there's this second part that describes his burial. In the first part, we see that Jesus is the answer to our greatest problem. Jesus is the answer to our greatest problem. Let me ask you, what would you consider to be your greatest problem? Or the greatest problem over the span of your life? Whatever your answer is to that question, it's very likely, if not certain, that ultimately your greatest problem is traceable back to our one great problem as members of the human race. Namely, that we are alienated from God. We're born in exile from him. It hasn't always been that way. In the Garden of Eden, okay, think back, Genesis 1 and 2. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had immediate access to him. Think about the word immediate. Access to him without a mediator. They didn't need a priest to come and represent them before God. God didn't have a priest to represent him to people. They had immediate access to God. They wanted to talk to God. He was just there. There was fellowship with God. It was immediate. But when Adam and Eve sinned against God, and you can read about their sin in Genesis 3, when they sinned against God, they were sent away. They were sent out of the garden. They lost immediate access to God. There are lots of tragic things that happen in the Bible. I think um, the words what we're going to see here in just a moment, these words from Genesis 3 are among the saddest words in the entire scriptures. These are the words that follow Adam and Eve's sin. We find there, it says this, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now... See, because of our sin, we were sent away. Sent away with no way to get back. The human race in exile from God, we didn't get to stay with Him and enjoy His very presence because of our sin against Him. We became alienated from God. Alienation from God is what I'm calling our greatest problem. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, well, isn't sin our greatest problem, right? Sin is my greatest problem. Yeah, sin is a problem. But think about this. Even if all of us stopped sinning this afternoon, ceased from sinning, no more sin for any of us. We weren't sinning anymore. But we still lived apart from God. We would still be poor, even if we stopped sinning, if we aren't reconnected to God We would still be without God. Alienation from God is our greatest problem. Sin is the cause of it. That's the great tragedy of sin, is that through sin we lost immediate access to God. Now, you may not consider alienation from God to be your greatest problem... You may not consider alienation from God to be a problem at all. I don't know what your background is. I don't know what brought you in here this morning. If you're listening online, I don't know how you landed here. I don't know what you think about alienation from God. Why is that such a problem? Think about the consequence. The consequences that we have suffered as a human race because we are alienated from God. One huge consequence of not being able to see him and... Stand in awe of his beauty, the creator of everything, the one who created the heavens. We can't see him anymore. We can't be with him anymore. One consequence of that is that our hearts are prone to be captured by all of the lesser beauties that we find around us. Having lost access to the one truly beautiful, we settle out here in, in exile for, all, for the second and third best options. For the other beautiful things that we can find. So we look at another person. We look at the bodies of other people and we worship. We look at the other things that God created and we worship. We worship them. Human Existence has been full of this. We look up our ancient forefathers and even still people today look up at the sun and the moon that God created and worship inanimate spheres. And people look at animals and images of things and, and worship. This is just Romans 1. Mankind looks at mountains and trees and animals and they make them objects of worship. Man turning away from the worship of God to worship the things that he created. Would you agree that God created some really beautiful things? You know, and you feel, do you feel the tug of your heart toward these beautiful things, things that you find beautiful and how you give yourself to them? Focus on them, obsess over them, you know you know the feeling of worship whether you whether you feel worship when you come into this room or not you know on Sunday morning, you know what it means to worship, you know what it feels like, right the obsessing over the constant attention to the the finding of the beauty and the bowing down to the beauty God. Created all of these beautiful things but here's the thing none none of those things are designed to be worshipped by a human they can't bear the weight of it in the end they will disappoint you they simply weren't designed to satisfy you to the degree to which the human heart desires to be satisfied Therefore, the human who worships something that they find beautiful that is not God will suffer disappointment because these things can't can't satisfy. And the human who worships something that they find beautiful that is not God will suffer depravity. Because the more we worship idols, the more God gives us over to these things. And we spiral downward. Because worshiping and not being satisfied with the result doesn't keep us from continuing our worship. We just dig deeper and deeper. We keep going after that object saying, yeah, at some point I'm going to be satisfied. And so we get really depraved when we do that. Because then we start looking for other ways to worship this thing. And we nuance our worship and we keep digging into it. And we just get more and more depraved. this is all trying to squeeze water out of a rock things we're worshiping just can't give us what we want we were, were alienated from God but we were made to worship so we worship stuff we suffer disappointment we keep worshiping we suffer depravity and along the way through this whole process we hurt people We hurt others. Other people pay the price for our worship of idols. And our pain increases. We're alienated from God. We become more and more alienated from other people. This is what, you know, when we talk about living in a fallen world, these are the dynamics of the fallen world. Idolatry, depravity, wounding other people in our pursuit. I just want to, Take a moment and ask you, identify in your life, where are you in this cycle of worshiping what you ought not worship? And are you starting to find yourself disappointed? And do you see yourself starting to become depraved in following these things? And who is being wounded or who potentially will be wounded as you continue to pursue and pursue and pursue? Also... Just thinking back over your life, how have you been wounded by someone else's pursuit of what ought not be worshipped? I'm sure that this room is just full of of people who bear deep wounds because someone close to you in your life pursued this this idol relentlessly. And it, it cost you personally. All this alienation from God has left our race in in deep pain. Okay? I'm just trying to set up the problem because we're going to see how Jesus solves the problem. But I really want us to feel the weight of what this alienation has created in our world before we see how Jesus solves our problem. I'm thinking about access to God and human race's ability to be with God. Remember that access to God was partially restored in the Jewish temple system. God chose a a small group of people and said, I will be with you. And specifically, I will be with you in this one little place, in this one little room, the Holy of Holies, with other sectioned off areas outside it. God was in, God's very presence was in this one little room, okay? And one person could go in one time a year. That's the access that humanity had to God for a long time. One person, one time a year. That was it. So access to God was partially restored, but we made a mess of that too because even the Jewish nation, the Israelites, having access to God, even though it was very limited access, they made a mess of that too. They went and worshipped the gods of other nations. They turned their back on the one true God and said, we're going to worship these other gods. So eventually they were sent into exile as well. We made a mess of even limited access to God. And then Jesus comes, okay? If you've been waiting for the payoff, you've been waiting for Luke 23, here it is. Jesus comes, and in Luke 23, in his death, in his final moments, we see this comment that may come out of nowhere for you. In verse 45, Luke 23, 45, we read this interesting detail that the curtain of the temple was torn in two. What does that mean? Not far from where Jesus was crucified, there was the, the Jewish temple. It's still there. You can go there today. And in that, in that temple, the, the Holy of Holies, the, pa- the place of God's dwelling, was, was curtained off. There was, there was a curtain that separated. Not anyone could go in there. There was also a curtain that separated the outer court from the inner courts to keep the Gentiles out. So there are multiple curtains in this temple. And we read the curtain was torn in two. Okay, well, which curtain? The one that kept the Gentiles out from the place where the Jewish people could go? Or was it the curtain that sectioned off God's holy presence and the holy of holies? Which one? We don't know. Some people think it was one. Some people think it was the other. I happen to think it was the curtain that separated off the holy of holies. God's immediate presence. But... People disagree about that. We don't know. But the result is still the same. What does it mean that the curtain tore? The fact that the curtain tore means access to God has been restored. That's the point. The curtain tore from top to bottom. We read in the Gospel of Matthew. Top to bottom. What does it mean? God did the tearing. When Jesus died, the curtain was torn apart and access to God was restored. What we lost in Eden was regained for us by Jesus. The tearing of the curtain represents our greatest problem solved. Not because we were strong enough or smart enough to figure out how to do it, but because God sent a champion to do it for us. I want to spend just a few minutes thinking together about how Jesus won our access back to God. Okay? What was it about him? How did he do it? What was special about Jesus that restored our access to God? Well, let's start, let's start here. Having offended God like we did, like our race did in the garden, having offended him, turned our back on his beauty, rejected his authority, and said, no, we will have our own independence, thank you very much, having made that determined decision to turn away from God, how do you make that right? How do you go about, how does our race go about making that right? What can we give him? What can we say? What do we do? Okay, we we know a little bit about these things. You're out mowing the lawn and you accidentally mow over your neighbor's flowers. Okay, how are we going to make up for that? Well, we're going to take him a casserole, aren't we? And we're going to say, I'm very sorry that I mowed over your flowers. We say something about a friend that we shouldn't have said in a... A moment of weakness, we make a comment we shouldn't have made, and how are we going to make up for that? Well, we're going to take him out, we're going to buy him a cup of coffee, and we're going to apologize. We're going to make it right, okay? We know how to handle these situations, but what are we going to do about our offense before God? How do we make up for that? We can't take out a casserole. The short answer and the biblical answer is that what is required is a perfect sacrifice. That's what's required to make up, to atone for sin, a perfect sacrifice. Sacrifice has to be perfect to satisfy a perfect God. This is pictured in the Old Testament sacrificial system. The offerings they brought for sin had to be an unblemished animal. You have to bring God a perfect sacrifice. It it won't do to bring a blemished sacrifice. The the other key here is that the sacrifice that we offer to God to make up for our sin has to be in the likeness of the ones who actually made the offense. Can't just give God an animal to make up for the offense of humans. The sacrifice has to be in, in the likeness of the ones who made the offense. Now the only one who can be perfect and unblemished is God Himself. There's no perfect human that can be morally pure before God. So the sacrifice we bring to God has to be God to be perfect. But the sacrifice also has to be a human in order to represent us before God and atone for the sin of a human. Therefore, the one perfect sacrifice that we need to bring to God has to be both God and man, fully God and fully man. And this, my friends, is the person that you see on the cross in Luke 23. Jesus, the God-man, making atonement for our sin. Jesus opened the way for us back to God through his perfect life and through his atoning death. Both were necessary. How did he reopen the way to God? How did Jesus restore what was lost? That's the question we're trying to answer. It was both his perfect life and his atoning death. Both were necessary. Notice, look back at the passions. Let's get back back into the text. Notice how the text highlights his perfect life in these different ways. We have this comment from the centurion. Certainly this man was innocent. He, He looks up and he testifies to this man's perfect life. Certainly this man was innocent. We've got the crowds. They go home beating their breasts in agony. Be- why? Why, are they, why are they beating their breasts in agony? Well, they, they know that an injustice has been carried out. They know they have witnessed something that was wrong. They, they watched an innocent man die. And the, the capstone of Jesus... Perfect life is his prayer of verse 46. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. To the end, even having been nailed to the cross as an innocent person, he has not turned his back on the Father. Faithful to God, to the end, even under the worst conditions. Think about the contrast between Jesus and the human race. Think about Adam. Adam was faithless to God under ideal conditions, right? I love this contrast between Jesus and us. Adam had the best conditions. Everything was beautiful. He had everything he needed and he was faithless to God when everything was right. And everything is going wrong for Jesus. He's innocent and had every reason to think, God is not there. God is not faithful. I can't trust him. Why is this happening to me? And he was faithful under the worst conditions. This is Jesus Christ, the champion. Faithful. Under the worst. And we couldn't do it under the best. But this is the God man. This is his perfect life. We needed it. We needed this perfect life that we can't live. He followed God to the end. And of course, we needed him to die in our place. It it had to be a death to atone for sin. Death is the consequence for sin. We talked about this last week, so we're really not going to spend much time talking about his death today. But just, just to say this one thing, though, to take this, this one angle and, and notice how the text helps us. And this is going to seem really simple, okay? But notice all the ways in which the text confirms that Jesus really did die. that Jesus of Nazareth really did die on the cross is not a universally accepted truth. There are billions of people in the world that believe that Jesus did not really die on the cross. Those who hold to the Islamic faith especially believe, believe this. So if that is your faith background... <clears throat> If if Islam is your home faith, or if you have an opportunity to interact with those of the Islamic faith, pay attention to this, because the Islamic faith says, no, Jesus didn't really die on the cross. Either someone was substituted for him that, that died, so it wasn't really him. Someone died, but not Jesus. That's one thing that's proposed. Or... Jesus was severely wounded and really close to death, but didn't actually die. So when he was in the tomb, it wasn't so much a resurrection as it was a recovery. And he came out. Okay? No, if, if that's your thinking, look at what the text says. Look at all the ways it confirms that Jesus of Nazareth really did die. First of all, the centurion is an expert in death. The Roman centurions know when someone's dead. And he's there, and he watches, and he says something. Secondly, notice that Jesus was buried by his friends. He wasn't just taken off the cross and and dumped into a mass grave by people that didn't care whether he was actually dead or not because he was, you know, as good as dead. No, it was his friends who took him down, who had every interest in him still being alive and every hope that maybe he would be. And they were the ones who handled his body, and laid it in the tomb and left. And they had every interest in him surviving, but they knew he was dead. And finally, if you think someone else may have died in his place, again, it was his friends that took him down and buried him. Those closest to him, who knew him, who had been with him, they would recognize the person that they were caring for at this point. Jesus really did die, and the the problem that most who disagree with that have is that they don't think that God's anointed one could suffer this humiliation and die. Like, if you're God's anointed, why would God ever allow that to happen? They just don't think logically that that could happen. But it misses the point of his death. Jesus was not suffering this humiliation and death for things that he had done because God was displeased with him. He was suffering on our behalf. He owned it for us. He bore the curse for us. And therefore suffered this humiliation and death to pay for our sins. Jesus' perfect life and his death in our place have reopened the way to God. Let's finish and say this last thing because his burial is not the end of the story. We're going to get to the resurrection account later, but I think today we, we have to take this one more step and just say that Jesus has returned to the Father because we're interested in our own return, right? He's opened the way for us to go back to God, the thing that we lost in Eden. And Jesus has returned to the Father now, and mankind may also return. He not only reopened the way, he actually took the way. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and then he ascended into heaven to the Father's right hand. He has returned to the place where we are going. It might be difficult for you to think about Jesus not still here on the planet. You know, you think, wow, okay, Christians say Jesus died, he rose again, but why would Jesus leave the planet? Like, wouldn't it be better for him to stay here and appear to people for a long time and just convince people that he's still alive, right? Wouldn't that make sense? It's very convenient for Christians to say, well, he went back to heaven, There are two answers to that point of view. Number one, Jesus rose and ascended for a reason. He's gone on ahead of us to guarantee our place. He rose from the dead as we will. He ascended to the Father as all who are in him by faith will. Jesus has done it. This is the ground of our hope, restoring our access to Eden, to the Father's very presence. He is there now. It's one reason that he left the planet. Second reason is that God has actually given us the privilege of witness, of appearing before people to tell what God has done in Jesus Christ. So, this is part of God's beautiful plan. Instead of one person. Jesus in one place, sharing the news. God has filled many people with his spirit to go out and be witnesses to Jesus Christ all over the planet. God has sent forth his own, filled them with the spirit. This, think about what happened when the, when the curtain tore, right? What, what could have happened when that curtain tore apart at Jesus' death? You might think, well, this is God just sitting there in that room Waiting for people to come to him, right? The way is open now. And maybe God will just stay there and wait for people to come and bow down before him. That's the exact opposite of what happened. The curtain tore. Once God's justice was satisfied, that curtain tore open and a torrent of mercy flew out of that room. Like once God's justice was satisfied, his mercy could not be contained. He didn't stay. He sent his spirit. There was a sound like a mighty rushing wind on the day of Pentecost. And fire flooded down from heaven and filled those believers. And they were sent out everywhere. The way to God is open. But this is what I want you to understand. God is not waiting for people to come to him. He is Filling believers with the Spirit, you included, and sending people forth. Seeking worshipers. Bringing people to himself by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is active and the Word of God is active. And when the Holy Spirit brings a person to Jesus, the Holy Spirit brings them to the tree of life. The tree of life, which is now the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ is unguarded. And the Holy Spirit brings a person to the tree of life, and from this tree of life we take and eat. See the very words that Jesus used at the institution of communion. This is my body, which is for you. Take, eat. In the Garden of Eden, we took and ate and died. The cross of Christ, we take and we eat we live. We take and eat of Jesus Christ by receiving him, by believing in him. It's not a physical taking and eating. It's a spiritual taking and eating. We know that we need his perfect life in his atoning death. And we say, Jesus, I receive that. I need it. I receive you by faith. And believing that he rose from the dead and ascended to the Father We know that this is the guarantee of our resurrection and our return to God's immediate presence. One more very practical benefit, brothers and sisters, this is the very end. But having received the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ, we are now no longer slaves to sin and depravity. Our access to God has been restored even now with the Holy Spirit indwelling us. We are no longer slaves to sin. You know what that means? You know that cycle, of depravity that we talked about earlier? We don't have to participate in that anymore. We're free. Before Christ, we weren't free to walk away from that. Now we are free. Now by the indwelling Holy Spirit, we can walk away from sin, and we can enjoy God, and our soul can grow and flourish And we can look more and more like God instead of this downward spiral of being chained to our sin and depravity. Christ's death has freed you from your sin. John 5, when Jesus approaches that man who's lame and says, do you want to be well? The power to get up and be well is in the command of Christ. He had no power on his own. But by the word of Christ, that's where the power resides. He was able to stand up and walk. And you, Christian, through faith in Christ, are free of your chains. You can stand up and you can walk away. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Amen. Lord Jesus, we praise you for restoring us to God. Our greatest problem has been taken care of through your perfect life and your atoning death. Lord, don't let us take it for granted. Don't let us be ungrateful. I pray for all the believers in the room that our our gratitude would, would be new and fresh this week for the work of Jesus Christ in our lives. Father, let us realize that the chains of sin have been broken. That access to you is now unguarded for us. By the power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, we are new. We are new. And the power has come from Christ, not us. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name.